Mark Zuckerberg told The New Yorker the news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. So listen to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, the podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every day. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you get a rundown of what happened in the world of tech with all the headlines, context, commentaries, and tweets from all the biggest players. New episodes every day at 5 p.m. Eastern. Search your favorite podcast app for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Zenni offers thousands of affordable eyewear styles, starting at just $6.95. No ridiculous markups, no hassles, just quality, affordable eyewear delivered right to you. Visit Zenni today at zenni.com slash CNN. Good evening. Today, one of the biggest celebrities of the last half century was handcuffed and taken to prison for sexually assaulting a woman. Yet Bill Cosby's sentencing, a landmark in so many ways, is not our lead story. It is part of a larger conversation about women and justice and politics and perception that so many people are having right now. We begin with another part of that conversation, and the stakes could not be higher. We're talking, of course, about the fight over Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and the two accusers so far who say he sexually assaulted them. Now, late today, Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee who control the process scheduled their first vote on the nomination for 9.30 a.m. on Friday, a day after Thursday's testimony from Judge Kavanaugh and his first accuser, Christine Blasey Ford. Now, we should note, just a few minutes ago, they added a caveat. They're only potentially going to vote, but nonetheless, it's been added to the schedule. And it certainly tracks with what many Republicans have been saying about the need to vote and the refusal to hear public testimony on Thursday from anyone beyond those two witnesses. I'm glad we'll be able to hear testimony from both. And then I look forward to an up or down vote on this nomination right here on the Senate floor. Only today, in a letter to ranking Democrat Dianne Feinstein, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley declined to postpone Thursday's hearing in light of allegations from the second accuser, Deborah Ramirez. Also late today, Senator Lindsey Graham told CNN's Manu Raju he's got, quote, zero patience, his words, for Democratic demands that others testify. Again, the committee's first vote is now set for Friday, with further action expected over the weekend. And as they push forward, the GOP's language towards the process and the accusers seems to be changing. Listen to the tone early last week. So let me make very clear. I've spoken with the president. I've spoken with Senator Graham and others. Uh, This woman will be heard. They'll go through a process and hear everybody out. I think it's important. I believe they think it's important. I'd like to see a complete process. I'd like everybody to uh, be very happy. Well, that was the 17th when it was only Professor Ford's uh, accusations that were in the public domain. And for nearly four days, the president tweeted not one word about it. On the 21st, he did, at first only raising questions about the process, not the accuser. Judge Brett Kavanaugh is a fine man with an impeccable reputation who's under assault by radical left-wing politicians who don't want to know the answers. They just want to destroy and delay. Facts don't matter. I go through this with them every single day in D.C. Now, he posted that at 8.56 a.m. Then uh, he needed, apparently, he felt the need to say more. So 18 minutes later, at 9.14, he raised his first question about Professor Ford. Quote, I have no doubt that if the attack on Dr. Ford was as bad as she says, Charges would have been immediately filed with local law enforcement authorities by either her or her loving parents. I ask that she brings those filings forward so that we can learn date, time and place. Again, that was Friday by yesterday after The New Yorker published the article with allegations made by Deborah Ramirez. This is what Kellyanne Conway said. 
This may be the first time we've ever heard of allegations against someone as a teenager who did not prey upon women, thusly, as he became powerful. I just don't think one man's shoulders should bear decades of the Me Too movement. Well, also yesterday, key Senate Republicans were ramping up some of their rhetoric. Democrats wouldn't let a few inconvenient things, like a complete lack of evidence, or an accuser's request for confidentiality to get between them and a good smear. It's despicable. There was more today. Talking about Ms. Ramirez, though not by name, President Trump said this. Oh, gee, let's not make him a Supreme Court judge because of that. The second accuser has nothing. The second accuser doesn't even know. She thinks maybe it could have been him, maybe not. She admits that she was drunk. She admits time lapses. There were time lapses. This is a, a person, and this is a, a series of, of uh, statements that's going to take one of the most talented, one of the greatest intellects, from a judicial standpoint in our country, going to keep him off the United States Supreme Court. Well, tonight, that's a question that, for the president at least, answers itself. Now, in just a few moments, you'll be hearing exclusively from one of the attorneys for Deborah Ramirez. We invited every Republican member of the Judiciary Committee to come on the broadcast tonight. Got no for an answer. Right now, we are joined by a Democratic member, Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut. Senator Blumenthal, so the fact that the committee has now tentatively scheduled its vote for not even 24 hours after Thursday's hearing. I'm wondering, what it, to you, what does that say about this process? Scheduling this hearing, even before hearing Dr. Blasey Ford on Thursday, demonstrates exactly the disregard and disrespect for assault survivors that shames and silences so many before they come forward. And the message is very clear. They are less interested in the truth, in the facts and evidence, than in putting ideological extremists on the court. And these insulting, demeaning, disrespectful comments by the president, by the majority leader, are an insult not only to Dr. Blasey Ford and Deborah Ramirez, but to the entire survivor community. The flip side of that, of course, from the Republican standpoint, is if uh, Judge Kavanaugh, if people are lying about him, doesn't he deserve to have a vote one way or the other? He deserves to have a vote if it is concluded he's telling the truth, if his veracity is established after this hearing. But even before the hearing, if he really wanted to clear his name, he would demand that the White House order an FBI investigation of these serious, credible allegations. If he really wanted his name cleared, he would demand that Senator Grassley schedule other witnesses like Mark Judge, who was in the room when this credible allegation of assault occurred. And he would also do other kinds of steps that would get at the facts and evidence. But in fact, the pattern here is one of concealing and hiding. Even before these allegations came forth, they concealed and hid millions of pages of documents that bore on his credibility. And that's one of the central issues, his veracity, his truth-telling, or lack of it, that will be at issue this Thursday. I should point out, Professor Ford is alleging the judge was in the room. Obviously, we don't know that uh, for for a fact. The the hearing on Thursday, do you have any understanding as to how it's going to work and the choreography of it? Because when your, your colleague, Senator Dick Durbin, was asked about it today, all he could say was that, quote, the table and chairs situation has been resolved. 
We know more about it now, but still the details are unresolved in final form. But here's the way it probably will work. The sexual assault survivor, Dr. Blasey Ford, will appear and be questioned by a prosecutor selected by the 11 male Republicans. She is said to be a woman. We have no idea as to exactly who she is. And we as Democrats will do our constitutional duty. We will be asking questions of both her and then of Judge Kavanaugh. And there will be five-minute rounds for each of us as senators, which is barely adequate. In fact, it should be much longer, and it will be carefully choreographed. But the really significant news tonight is scheduling this vote the day after, literally the day after this hearing, leaving no one really time to consider the testimony and no time for witnesses, including Deborah Ramirez, who has just come forward, let alone the FBI investigation, which really should be done before a hearing, let alone a vote. Do you think it's appropriate that it's not going to be Republican uh, senators asking questions, but uh, what they described as a a, a career uh, sex crimes prosecutor? The question really is, Anderson, why are our Republican colleagues hiding behind a prosecutor? And the answer, I think, was given earlier today by Bob Corker, our colleague, who said they feared saying something insensitive, I think was the word he used, that would then be repeated 24-7. We're not afraid of questioning witnesses. That's our constitutional duty. I think that they should do their job. You know what uh, Republicans will say, though, that, look, if it was all-male Republicans asking Professor Ford questions, that Democrats would have been critical of the fact that there were no female Republican senators on the committee to ask questions. The lack of diversity on that committee is their doing, not ours. And there is nothing about that excuse that justifies their ducking their constitutional duty. What's really important, though, is the goal of uncovering the facts and evidence. If Republicans were really serious about that goal, they would have asked for an FBI investigation. I know that it seems like common sense, but no prosecutor, and I was a prosecutor for many years before coming to this job, would put a witness on the stand, not to mention a crime survivor, without first investigating the allegation and all of the facts, because we ought to have a common goal of investigating the facts. And this process now has become so partisan sadly and regrettably, it is almost another nail on the coffin of a nonpartisan Supreme Court. And it will, I fear, stain and cloud not only this nomination, Brett Kavanaugh, but the court itself. Senator Blumenthal, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. In a moment, an exclusive uh, interview with the, uh, the, uh, one of the attorneys for uh, the second accuser, Deborah Ramirez, whose identity was revealed in The New Yorker. Joining us right now is CNN chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin, CNN legal commentator Ken Cuccinelli, and CNN political analyst and New York Times White House correspondent uh, Maggie Haberman. Um, the fact that the Judiciary Committee is possibly taking 
Kavanaugh's nomination to a vote on Friday. I mean, it certainly shows their desire to move forward as quickly as possible. Yes, and I think they've actually been quite blunt about that publicly. I think that you uh, take the aggregate of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's comments on the floor. Um, you heard what the president said today, which was wildly off script and not what he uh, had been advised to do. Uh, and I think he had a variety of reasons for doing that. Um, and the fact that he needed a, they needed to set this hearing, I think, three days ahead of time. So they had to do it today. If they wanted to do it Friday, they can always postpone it. But yes, it says that a lot of people, and you heard Lindsey Graham say this on Sunday, you have heard other senators say this, that basically they've made up their minds about the vote. Why do you think the president wanted to make those comments today? I think the president has gotten two reasons. I think the president was frustrated because he had been laughed at at UNGA after, during his speech uh, shortly before General Assembly. You in General Assembly, and I think he took his frustration from one forum and turned it toward another. Um, I think that he has been frustrated over days and days and days of watching the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh. He confided to a number of people around him uh, after Brett Kavanaugh's interview last night that he didn't think it was particularly strong, uh, That and most White House officials shared that view. Um, he has been anxious about this getting through since last week, and I think he is at the point where he would just like to know already, one way or the other, um, so they can figure out what to do next if it doesn't work. Ken, what, what kind of a message, if any, do you think it sends... Professor Ford, that Republicans are already planning to, to possibly take a vote the day after the, the hearing? Well, I, I, I don't find anything unusual about it for the committee. I mean, the, the key is getting this hearing done and hearing from these two individuals. Um, that is going to happen. And remember, even in addition to the delay introduced by the initial confidentiality, which is understandable, but the later delay when uh, Dr. Ford surfaced and said, I want to I do this, and then the negotiation back and forth. I have never seen a committee chairman give a witness so much room, so many options as Chairman Grassley gave to Dr. Ford, and yet it still got delayed even beyond uh, the week that the rules call for and so forth. So I think that uh, the Friday vote is understandable in that context, because remember, this is already a delayed process, um, and the key is going to be Thursday. Jeff, uh, how do you see this vote, uh, possible vote on Friday? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the hearing and I'm thinking about this prosecutor. I, I think this presents a lot of peril uh, for, for Ms. Ford. I mean, you know, think about the questions you could ask her if you ask like a prosecutor. You know, who else was present? I don't know. Where, what day did it take place? I don't know. What house did it take place? I don't know. How many? Who did you tell? I don't know. But are those I didn't questions tell anyone. That should be asked? Well, yeah, they are. But... A skilled prosecutor could make this witness look pretty bad. Senators are notoriously terrible questioners. They like to right. talk. They don't like to answer. They don't like to uh, a- ask questions. And I think this this decision to, you know, bring in a prosecutor is well within the rights of of the of the Republican majority. And I think it could turn out to be a very clever and and effective strategy. Can I comment on that, sure. Anderson? Um, first of all, uh, I agree with Jeffrey, but I want to make a broader point. If truth is the goal in any House or Senate hearing, it is amazing the number of times that utilizing one questioner who's a professional would get so much farther down the road, more professionally, and frankly, better for the committee members, better for the witnesses, and better for truth itself. I wish there was more of this done by both sides of the aisle. I I don't think it's partisan in the sense that it's a good practice. 
And truth is the most mm. important thing on Thursday, no matter how one comes to it, whether you come as a Republican, a Democrat, undecided, whatever, um, and, and as to these two individuals, truth is the goal. And I think single questioner helps get to that better. Maggie, I mean, Ken makes a good point. Uh, it's rare, though, that you have politicians yeah. mm-hmm. not wanting to be on camera being seen as a- asking questions. This is um, potentially very fraught uh, for people questioning Ms. Ford. You could end up looking, as, uh, among the, the male members of this um, committee, you can end up looking as if you're bullying her, depending on how the questions are asked. Um, I agree with Jeffrey that I think that it is a potentially shrewd move, especially because we do know that there are clearly missing pieces of her story. I think the flip side of that is that, and this is what I have heard privately uh, concerns among Republicans about, and some in the White House, is if she is if she is giving her testimony and she is describing what she described to the Washington Post, which was a hand covering her mouth and this pretty um, grim attack or grim attempted attack, uh, it might be hard to puncture that, even with shrewd questioning. That can be a pretty powerful statement politically. And it can be hard, again, even for a skilled prosecutor, they're doing their job as a prosecutor. That doesn't necessarily play as well in a Senate hearing. Jeff, I mean, even if the Judiciary Committee does take Judge Kavanaugh's nomination to a vote on Friday and he doesn't get the votes, it wouldn't be the the end of the road for him, right? I mean, Justice Clarence Thomas wasn't fully endorsed by the committee and still ended up getting confirmed. It it was a tie vote. The majority leader runs this process, Mitch McConnell. and, And, you know, Mitch McConnell, this is his mission as majority leader. The courts generally, and the Supreme Court in particular. This is the most important thing he will do in his entire career, which is shift the Supreme Court to a five-to-four heavy-duty conservative majority. This is what he has dedicated his life to. He is going to put pressure on Susan Collins, on Lisa Murkowski, uh, to the extent he can, and it's not, you know, his, his power is not complete, but... He is going to do absolutely everything he can, not least because the election is coming up and the Republicans may lose the majority, in which case they'll get nobody. Mm. So, I mean, the the stakes for Mitch McConnell could not be higher. Jeff Tubin, Ken Cuccinelli, Maggie Haberman, thanks very much. Coming up next, a 360 exclusive. One of the lawyers for Deborah Ramirez joins us to react in part to the president's characterization of his client. Later, Bill Cosby's journey from America's dad to convicted sex offender and what his sentencing today says about fame, justice, and the pain that so many women say he inflicted on them. Tired of spending hundreds of dollars for prescription glasses? Our friends at Zenni Optical offer a huge variety of high-quality, stylish frames and state-of-the-art optics starting at just $6.95. You can get multiple frames with this great pricing for less than one pair elsewhere. Start building your eyewear wardrobe from the comfort of your own home at Zenni.com. With the latest trends in eyewear, available in hundreds of frame styles and materials, there isn't a better way to change it up for every season. Plus, Zenni offers prescription sunglasses at incredible prices. Visit Zenny today at zenny.com slash CNN. That's Z-E-N-N-I dot com slash CNN. With the Senate Judiciary Committee now seemingly determined to vote on Brett Kavanaugh and vote uh, by uh, Friday morning, or at least beginning Friday morning, criticism by the president about the allegations made in The New Yorker by Deborah Ramirez have uh, ramped up. He spoke today about her drinking and what he called time lapses. As you know, Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer of The New Yorker reported Sunday that Ms. Ramirez, who attended Yale with Judge Kavanaugh, says she remembers him exposing himself to her at a dormitory party. He denies it. We should also point out here that Republican staffers on the Senate Judiciary Committee spoke today on a conference call with Judge Kavanaugh, who again denied the allegations. Democratic staffers were also on the call but asked no questions. That's according to sources familiar with the call. 
Now, with all that said, here's my conversation, which uh, we uh, recorded just uh, before airtime with uh, John Clune, attorney for Deborah Ramirez. Mr. Clune, you, you heard what President Trump said about your client. I'm wondering, first of all, what your reaction was to that today. Well, it's obviously disappointing to have anybody take an attack on your client. But, you know, I feel like the politicians are going to say what they want to say. But it doesn't mean that, you know, what Debbie disclosed is not true. What is the current status of any discussions or negotiations you've had with the Senate Judiciary Committee? Because as recently as a few hours ago, Chairman Grassley said that Ms. Ramirez's legal team was just referring the committee to the New Yorker article and giving no other comment. And he also said, and I'm quoting, if Ms. Ramirez submits testimony and evidence to the Senate Judiciary Committee, which committee investigators have requested, we can decide how to proceed. Yeah, I, I don't know where the senator is getting that information from. We've had a number of email communications with the committee so far. But the difficulty is uh, every time we try to set up a phone call, the majority party either changes the rules of the phone call or they want additional information as a condition of even having a phone call with us. We finally had a phone call scheduled for 7 o'clock Eastern this evening. We got on the phone and only the minority party showed. So it feels like there's a lot of game playing that's going on right now by the majority party. And we just want to be able to talk to them and find out what is it they're contemplating about how this would be investigated or how Debbie could provide for information uh, to the Senate? When you said they're changing the rules of the phone call or, or how to set up the phone, can, can you be more specific? Sure. So, for, for example, we, you know, we, we had a phone call scheduled and then they sent us an email and saying in, in, for a condition for us to even have the phone call, you need to give us a list of all the evidence that you have and break it down for us before we'll even talk to you by the phone. And, you know, we responded, obviously, saying, well, we're really concerned. We have a client that we want to protect. And, um, you know, we want to make sure that whatever process you're going to do is going to be fair and um, respectful of her. And then they don't have the phone call with us. So I I don't know what else we can do um, if they're not going to engage. But blaming us for being non-cooperative is just, you know, flat out not consistent with how things have gone and what the emails show. So, so just regarding what Grassley, the direct quote that he said, that if Ms. Ramirez submits testimony and evidence to the Senate Judiciary Committee, which committee investigators have requested, we can decide how to proceed. You're saying your client is willing to do that if you can, what, guarantee or, or get information in advance about the questions or what specific? Well, no, as, you know, I think the First thing that's that's critical, Anderson, is that this has to be investigated by meaningful law enforcement. This is not something that can be done by either the Senate or some hired gun prosecutor that wants to cross-examine, you know, either Ms. Ford or, or uh, Ms. Ramirez. This has to be done by FBI who can investigate the matter with a threat of perjury. Are clients willing to do that? I'd be very interested to see whichever witnesses Judge Kavanaugh actually has remaining who are willing to talk, if they would be willing to do the same thing. So if we can get a meaningful investigation by the FBI. There are all sorts of ways that our client would be willing to provide uh, information to the Senate. So if there is no uh, FBI investigation and it was just a matter of submitting testimony and evidence to the Senate Judiciary Committee, to committee investigators, that's not something you are recommending your client do? I wouldn't recommend that she do that, no. I mean, that's you know, if it's just a matter of her disclosing information to them, that would be one thing. But if they're intending to have either, you know, grilling from the senators or grilling from some other individual, um, that kind of cross-examination cannot be a replacement for a meaningful investigation. As you know, Senator Grassley, uh, again, has raised the idea that, you know, talking to The New Yorker, that's you can lie to reporters. Uh, talking to Senate investigators is under oath. 
the implication obviously being that your client doesn't want to talk to investigators because it's under oath. Well, I mean, that's that's belied by the fact that she has stated very publicly that she's willing to uh, be investigated and actually tell her information to the FBI, which is also something that is punishable by the penalty of perjury. So an FBI individual, somebody who is a trained law enforcement investigator, somebody who is trauma-informed, somebody who understands sexual assault investigations and, and certainly can't be replaced by the individuals on the committee or any staff members that they hire. Would there be any advantage to having a preliminary interview, your client had giving a preliminary interview to uh, Senate investigators and, and then hoping that that would spark an FBI investigation? I, I don't know. Maybe if we could get the majority party on the phone to actually talk about these things, you know, we'd be a lot, be a lot better to consider these things and talk about them with our client. But right now we can't get any information from them. So they literally were not on the phone call that you had scheduled. Correct. The minority party was there and the majority party did not show. One of the uh, uh, suspicions that's been raised, obviously, about your client, which I want you to be able to respond to, is that it took Ms. Ramirez six days after she first talked to The New Yorker to actually name Brett Kavanaugh as the person who allegedly exposed himself to her can you and that she she consulted with attorneys? I'm not sure if it was with you directly. Can you explain why it took her six days? Yeah, it was not with me directly. It was with another attorney. But um, you know, the, the interesting thing about Miss Ramirez is she is very, very careful and very deliberate that she's not putting information out out there. She realizes the gravity of the situation in which she's coming forward, and so she wanted to be very, very careful. It's 35 years old. She wanted to make sure that what she was actually going to be disclosing publicly was information that she could rely on and that she could stand by and that was accurate. Um, with that passage of time, you know, she went through those memories and there, there were some things that she believed were probably true, but she didn't disclose those because she wasn't completely convinced of their accuracy. So that's the only reason why she did the, the work with the attorney and spent the six days to make sure that that information she did put forward was indeed accurate. Some people have implied that perhaps the attorneys she spoke to uh, may have been politically motivated or politically connected and encouraged her to specifically cite Judge Kavanaugh, even though her memory uh, was not uh, full on that. And last night on Fox News, Judge Kavanaugh cited a New York Times report that said Ms. Ramirez had recently contacted former Yale classmates, told them or told some of them that she wasn't sure it was Kavanaugh. Is that true that she had done that? You know, I wasn't representing her at the time that was going on, so I wouldn't be able to answer that question. But in, in regards to um, the information about the attorney that she hired, she hired Stan Garnett, who is a career prosecutor. He is somebody who, in just so very recently, was the elected district attorney for Boulder County, Ms. Ramirez's home county. So he was the perfect fit. And for anybody who knows Mr. Garnett, there is no way that he would play politics with some sort of information like this. He cares about victims of sexual violence and he wouldn't put forth information that was not accurate. And just so I'm clear, you're saying you have not asked your client whether, in fact, the New York Times reporting was correct, that she called up former Yale classmates and to some expressed that she wasn't sure if Kavanaugh was involved? I, I haven't asked her if she's if they, about the information in the New York Times um, uh, uh, article, no. If that, in fact, was true. I, you know, I, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if if that's if that's true, it would it would be more evidence of the fact that she wanted to be very, very deliberate about what was um, being put forth. I mean, she is probably the most 
careful and conscientious client that I've ever represented. It's, um, she is very adamant that she's not going to put forward information that she doesn't actually recall and doesn't think it's something that she can rely on. And to the extent that she was, um, you know, looking for any additional information, I mean, that was just smart investigation to make sure that, you know, she wasn't remembering things um, inaccurately or by the passage of time. Uh, Mr. Clune, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Anderson. Well, about what you just heard from John Clune, that which that uh, interview was taped right before we went on air, that no Republican staffers uh, were on tonight's conference call. We asked Chairman Grassley's office to respond. We received a chain of emails. This chain of emails here, which goes back several days, got no direct answer to our question about no Republicans being on the call. I do. We have just been going through this uh, while we were playing that interview, uh, and it seems like they're talking past each other. Uh, Mike Davis, uh, a number of times asked uh, over the last several days, uh, Mr. Uh, Clune. Uh, saying, before we discuss a phone call or any other next steps, we need to have the following information. One, does Ms. Ramirez have any other evidence, including other statements in addition to those that are contained in the New Yorker article? And two, is Ms. Ramirez willing to provide her evidence, including her testimony to committee investigators? They're saying they want that before they discuss having a call. And repeatedly, also, Mr. Clune, uh, in response, is basically saying, uh, in response to the first question, there are certainly more witnesses in the article that's why we want an FBI investigation. We don't see how you can get to the root of the, the matter without that. As for your second question, we couldn't answer without learning more for, from you about the details of whatever process you are contemplating. After hearing more, we would advise the client accordingly, and she could decide. So they seem to be talking past each other uh, on this. Uh, there's certainly a lot to talk about. Kirsten Powers and Amanda Carpenter were listening to that interview. We'll get their reaction after a quick break. Remember, to create an ad like this one, Visit purewinning.com slash CNN. A moment ago, you heard from the attorney for Deborah Ramirez. John Clune says he was on a Senate Judiciary Committee conference call tonight in hopes of speaking with Republicans on the panel. Whoever said only the Democratic members were on the call. Uh, we received an email chain uh, sent to us by uh, the GOP uh, uh, folks on the Judiciary uh, Committee uh, who essentially say they have been asking for any information that uh, Ms. Ramirez has on whether she'd be willing to talk to uh, Senate investigators uh, and uh, from Mr. Clune, uh, he's unwilling to give that information until they talk and find out more details about what specifically uh, the, uh, the GOP side wants. Joining us now is CNN political analyst Kirsten Powers, also Amanda Carpenter, author of the new book Gaslighting America, Why We Love It When Trump Lies to Us. Um, Kirsten, I'm wondering what you make of this kind of back and forth uh, uh, from, uh, from the attorneys, from Ms. Ramirez, and also from uh, the, folks, the GOP folks on the Judiciary Committee, the investigators? Well, I mean, what it sounds like is that they don't trust the Republicans to investigate this. And I think that's a pretty good judgment to make based on the behavior that we've seen, that they don't seem interested in getting to the truth. And she's asked for an FBI investigation. People typically don't ask the FBI to investigate their made-up stories because they could go to jail for it. And, and the Republicans have refused to have an FBI investigation of her or of Dr. Blasey Ford, which to me is the most suspicious thing in all of this. And even Lisa Murkowski said tonight, I think Manu Raju was the one who asked her about it, you know, should there be an investigation into these allegations? And she said, by the FBI. And she said, well, that certainly would clear everything up, wouldn't it? So it's pretty obvious that that is what is needed, that these people need to be put 
under oath and questioned, not just giving statements. People can craft statements that are very carefully worded and give them to the Senate, which is what's happened, that mostly say they don't remember it. Uh, it's very different when you're being questioned by the FBI. Um, and as a lawyer was saying, who has expertise in this area, knows how to ask these questions, knows how to deal with trauma victims or alleged trauma victims. And so I, th- I think what they're doing is actually very reasonable. Uh, Amanda, should uh, the GOP side agree to an FBI inves- investigation or have the White House ask for one? I've always thought from the beginning a limited investigation with the key players with a timetable made sense, um, but that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And here's what I would tell Ms. Ramirez or Dr. Ford, you know, take the politics out of it. If these were my friends, I would say, listen, if you want to go through this process, it is going to be painful. If your goal was to have your story told, go to the media, maybe go to another outlet. But if your goal is to change votes because you really can't live with the fact that this guy might be on the Supreme Court, then you're going to have to find the will to go to Congress and tell your story, however uncomfortable that may be, because there are deadlines at play, manufactured or not. There is a very strong power play going on right now by the GOP. Mitch McConnell's calling the vote on Friday. I mean, he's trying to make this seem like this is said and done. Doesn't really matter what Dr. Ford says. They're going to move on. Uh, It's no coincidence that Brett Kavanaugh did that interview on Fox News, that Donald Trump is talking about it, that Mitch McConnell said over the weekend, we're going to plow through. And so if these women want to go through with it, it's going to be very hard, and they're going to have to show up on Thursday. Otherwise, their failure to show up is going to be uh, painted as a concession. Obviously, Kirsten, uh, Ms. Ramirez is not invited uh, a Thursday, and obviously uh, it seems like you know the GOP side is saying they want more information uh, before figuring out uh, you know, next steps, if there are, in fact, anybody to Amanda's point, it doesn't seem like there's going to be I mean, there's no appetite for an FBI investigation on the Republican side or the White House. That doesn't mean people shouldn't continue to ask for it. I, I think that we should still expect them to to want to get to the truth. The fact that they so transparently don't want to is a problem. And I think we have to talk about that. The fact that they're saying they're going to have a vote and have all but said he he is going to be confirmed shows us that they're not interested in getting to the truth. They're not interested in in taking these accusations seriously. And I think the reason that this has been scheduled for Friday is because they're afraid more information is going to come out. It's not just... It's not just that they don't want to get the truth. It's like I think they know the truth. And, that, and I think that's what's becoming concerning, is that they, are, they would only be moving so quickly if they thought more things were going to come out that were going to be problematic. Otherwise, you just at least go through the motions of saying, we'll do it next week. You don't have it the very next day. Uh, Amanda, why does there need to be such... I mean, if, if there is a rush, why does there need to be... The, the timing that the Republicans are, are pointing out. I mean, uh, Kirsten's saying that, that it's clearly they're just afraid of more stuff coming out. Well, I mean, I think you can look at the events of the last week with what Michael Abinati has threatened and, uh, threatened and not really at least come through in the last 24 hours to show why you'd want to put an end to this. But I think we have to look a little more globally at the importance of the Supreme Court seat. Uh, Republicans made a calculation in the 2016 election that they would back somebody who bragged about sexual assault on camera to get the Supreme Court seat. And so unless there is some kind of evidence that comes forward that is undisputable, I I don't think this thing is going to slow down. That said, I think it is important to the legacy of the seat that Republicans do move forward with confidence and clarity. 
about Brett Kavanaugh. And over the past week, you know, I have questions about the sexual assault. I am certain that he witnessed, at least as a student at Georgetown Prep and then continuing on his career. Um, And I want to know, did he ever stand up to it? What did he do about it? What did he think? And those are legit questions aside from everything else Mm. that do have to be resolved. Amanda Carpenter, Kirsten Paris, I appreciate it. Thanks. Another unprecedented moment today for President Trump. He was speaking to the U.N., uh, boasting about his accomplishments, and then this happened. Didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay. People laughing. The president had a different take on that just a few hours later. We'll talk about it and much more with Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Peters next. I'm Andy Cash from March Madness 365, and on this edition of our show, I'll be joined by Syracuse's Tyus Battle. I've been just trying to improve all facets of my game, just being able to be more offensive, throwing the ball different ways, shooting the ball, I think that's improved, and uh, just my playmaking ability as well. Subscribe to March Madness 365 now at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. President Trump often points out his accomplishments at rallies. He did it just the other day in Las Vegas. Today, he tried the same thing at the United Nations, and the room for of world leaders proved to be a slightly tougher crowd. Take a look. In less than two years, my administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. America's so true. Didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay. Well, you just heard the president say he didn't expect the reaction, but then hours later, when asked about the laughter, the president had a different take. He told reporters, and I quote, that was meant to get some laughter. The president's now trying to play off the moment as if he was making a joke and wanted them to laugh. You'd think he wouldn't want that. After all, for years, he's been critical of the work on the world stage by his predecessor using a key phrase over and over. The world is laughing at us, folks. They're laughing at us, at our stupidity. They laugh at us. They're laughing at us. It's just crazy what's going on. Everybody's laughing at us. They're laughing at us. We don't know what we're doing. They're laughing at us because they think we're stupid. The whole world is laughing at us. They're laughing at this, at what's going on in our country. The world laughs at us, folks. The world laughs at us. Well, they were certainly laughing today at the U.N. Joining us now is strategic analyst and author, retired Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Peters. Colonel, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Anderson. Um, I mean, just on this kind of minor moment of the president being laughed at in front of the U.N. General Assembly, uh, I'm wondering what you make of it. I, I'm not sure I've seen that before. Well, I think it tells you that the, the nations of the world and their leaders and governments have priced Trump into the strategic marketplace, as it were. They feel like, OK, this is Trump. Um, we know it's going to be bad, but we're going to get through it. And um, it's pretty grim, pretty grim uh, when the world is indeed laughing and mocking, laughing at and mocking a U.S. president. But that's where we are, Anderson. And, you know, when I listened to the speech this morning, there, there was much to worry about. But I had to say that at the end of the day, it, I was a little bit relieved because, you know, instead of getting the Black Death, we just got influenza. You, you were expecting, uh, I, I, from what you're saying, you were expecting worse. I mean, the president's message today, it seems to be fairly consistent to what he said last year. Obviously not using, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un calling him rocket man. You know, he actually thanked him uh, for what he described as his courage. Yeah, which was, was just plain nutty. But, you know, 
When the U.S. president speaks, it matters. The words matter. And beyond all the braggadocio and the, and, and the clown show antics, um, there were two tracks today. One was the immediate, wor- immediate problems facing us. And the other, though, was much deeper, and I think a lot of people missed it. When Trump kept going on and on and on about patriotism and sovereignty, patriotism and sovereignty, words mean different things to different people in different countries and cultures. To us, patriotism, we think defending our country. It's a good thing. Um, Sovereignty. Well, of course, we want a sovereign nation with controlled borders. But in much of the world, when we say, when Trump says patriotism and sovereignty, they hear nationalism and and basically um, in, that they're impermeable to, to blame, that they uh, can get away with whatever they want with their own, within their own countries. And, you know, there is a line somewhere out there, it's a little fuzzy, between honorable patriotism and rabid nationalism. And when Trump preaches what amounts to extreme nationalism, uh, you're, you're dragging the world back toward the 20th century, uh, back to the 1920s and 30s. Uh, nationalism, extreme nationalism, as opposed to honest patriotism, was the plague that bursting out of the 19th century just ravaged the 20th century in, in, uh, in tandem with extreme ideologies, communism, Nazism, etc. And you're saying so by, the, he doesn't the know this. Saying the that president today doesn't get it. Gives the, the gives freedom to other countries to make that same argument. Yeah, I, I certainly does. Or gives license, I should say. Yeah, exactly. It gives them license, and they hear. Um, uh, again, it's unleashing the demons that the last seven decades of peace have largely contained, mm-hmm. at least in, in the, the more economically developed world. And when he talks about sovereignty, again, to us, that means one thing. But to the bad actors around the world, that means I can do whatever I want within my borders. I can kill whoever I want. I can imprison whoever I want. And so, again... His speechwriters are, are mediocre at best. They have no command of language. They don't pay attention to the layered meanings of, wor- of, of the words. And he was essentially, as you said, giving license to people to act very, very badly mm. as long as they do it within their own borders. So I was worried about that. And then on the more immediate level of today's problems, um, Trump he actually has some good impulses, but he totally he shoots himself in both feet immediately. For one example, among many, China. The world is mad at China about its trade cheating, intellectual property theft, uh, bullying, uh, extortionate loans in the third world. Had Trump gone after China uh, first and foremost, he could have had the EU, Australia, Japan, North Korea, Southeast Asia all on our side. Mm. Instead, he attacked all of them and then went off with chi- off on China, and now it's us, you know, Washington versus Beijing, and we don't have allies, and nations yeah. need allies. Yeah. Uh, Colonel Ralph Peters, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Good discussion. Nice. Coming up, a, a far different story, but Cosby in handcuffs. Cosby sentenced to three to ten years in state prison for sexual assault. We'll take a look at the case and the conclusion next. Hey, it's Howard Beck, and I've got former NBA champion and current Yes analyst... Richard Jefferson on Bleacher Reports, the full 48. For me, winning the championship just validated, you know, me from a standpoint of like, 
All I ever wanted to do was win. All I ever wanted to do was win on a high, high level. And so to get that, then it just made everything feel like it was worth it. The Full 48 is now available on Spotify. And of course, you can always listen and subscribe on the Bleacher Report app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tonight, Bill Cosby is behind bars. He was sentenced today for drugging and sexually assaulting Andrea Constant 14 years ago. Here was the only case that was within the hers was the only case, I should say, within the statute of limitations. Although dozens of women came forward to say that Cosby had done the same to them for some of his accusers. Today's consequences for Cosby came after decades of waiting to be heard and believed. Jim Cazares has more. Mr. Cosby, any comments, sir? In a dramatic scene, Bill Cosby leaves a Pennsylvania courtroom in handcuffs. Once America's dad, now prisoner. Judge Stephen O'Neill sentencing the disgraced comedian three to ten years in state prison. For decades, uh, the defendant has been able to hide his, his true self and hide his crimes uh, using his fame and fortune. He's hidden behind a character created, Dr. Cliff Huxtable. Um, it was a seminal character on TV, uh, and so was the, the family, but it was fiction. Cosby has been under house arrest since April after being convicted of drugging and sexually assaulting Andrea Constand back in 2004. Today, Constand and her family watching from the first row of a packed courtroom. In her victim impact statement, she saying, quote, Bill Cosby took my beautiful, healthy young spirit and crushed it. He robbed me of my health and vitality, my open nature and my trust in myself and others. Judge Stephen O'Neill telling her, the jury heard your words. I heard your words. Then speaking directly at Cosby, Mr. Cosby, this has all circled back to you. The day has come. The time has come. He also said no one is above the law. Other women who say Cosby also attacked them watching from the gallery, embracing Constand after the sentence was read. Tamara Green was one of the first women to come forward after Constand. But today's the day that we've been waiting for. Today's the day when we got to, I got to witness the fact that Bill Cosby was rendered helpless by being taken out of a courtroom by policemen. Cosby declining to address the court but after court, his publicist defending him and likening him to Jesus. Cosby's doing great, and Mr. Cosby knows that God is watching over him. He knows that these are lies. They persecuted Jesus, and look what happened. Not saying Mr. Cosby is Jesus, but we know what this country has done to black men for centuries. This has been the most racist and sexist trial in the history of the United States. Cosby's lawyers saying they will appeal. But tonight, he is spending his first night in prison. And Bill Cosby was sentenced to three to ten years. So what that means is that he will have to spend three years in prison. And in 2021, we'll be able to go before the parole board for the first time. It doesn't mean he'll get out. He will be 84 years old. And one other note being in that courtroom today for the sentencing, it was a packed courtroom, wall to wall. But Bill Cosby had no one. He did not have a family member, his children, his wife was not there. But his publicist, Andrew Wyatt, that has stood by him every step of the way once again, 
was there alone. Gene, thank Anderson. you very much for the report. I appreciate it. The news continues. I want to hand it over to Chris. Cuomo Primetime starts now. Chris? Are you ready to learn how to build a better consulting or professional services company? Then download the Liston.io show for the best sales and marketing advice so you can deliver your services to the people who need you the most. On the show, I'll be interviewing the smartest people in the industry to share what they know about building a better consulting business. I'll also give you episodes where I tell you specifically how to sell your services with confidence and how to transform into an influential leader in your industry. Your happy clients probably want to help you. It's too hard for them right now. You're asking them to do too much of the selling that you should be doing. Yeah, it's going to move. It's going to change. It's going to disrupt you at some point in time. Your most loyal clients are your most profitable. Ready to learn how other people are building the consulting company you've always wanted? Download the Liston.io show spelled L-I-S-T-O-N dot I-O wherever you get your podcasts. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we just launched the ability for anyone to advertise on CNN Podcasts. You're just a few clicks away from reaching millions of people in a way that you never have before. Advertise for a business event or kick off an awareness campaign for your brand. Start today at purewinning.com slash CNN. Integrating podcasts into your marketing mix has never been easier. Go to purewinning.com slash CNN to get started.